Hello and welcome to the Rethinking ADHD podcast. My name is Simon Mundy and I am your host. It is clear that ADHD is being talked about much more than ever before. We're hearing about increasing numbers of celebrities and high-profile people being diagnosed, often well into adulthood. But despite the increase in awareness of ADHD, there are still significant misconceptions about what it is, as well as the impact it can have on people's lives and what you can do about it. So this series aims to explore what ADHD is and how it presents itself, challenge some myths and misconceptions about it and outline ways to manage the condition and thrive with it. I'll be speaking to athletes, entrepreneurs, authors, doctors and a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist to hear about their experiences and find out how they learn to flourish while living with ADHD. I'm hosting this series on behalf of QB Tech, who are the leading provider of FDA cleared objective ADHD tests. In this episode, I'm talking to Casey Davis, who is a licensed professional counsellor, author, speaker, and the brain behind the mental health platform Struggle Care. Casey's compassionate approach to self and home care for those struggling with their mental health enabled her to grow a huge social media following in a very short time, attracting over a million followers in less than a year. Her book, How to Keep House While Drowning, is an Amazon bestseller, and her platform, Struggle Care, is helping huge numbers of people to cope during challenging periods in their lives. We will link to Casey's platforms and publications in the show notes, but first, let's meet her. I do hope you enjoy our conversation, after which I'm speaking to an ADHD doctor about some of the key issues and themes that arose during our discussion. Casey Davis, I'm so pleased you could join me. How are you? I'm good. I, um, I'm i dying at the fact that we are going to talk about ADHD and I was 30 minutes late to the interview <laughs> because of my ADHD. Absolutely. It gives a, a whole beautiful flavor to our conversation and we're both full of energy as a result. But we'll part that to one side and let me introduce you to those who don't know you. You're a, you're a counselor, you're an author, a speaker. You're the person, or rather the brain, the genius brain behind struggle care. You're also a mother and many other things besides. So you've got a lot of plates to keep aloft. Yes. In a nutshell, before we go on, just what is struggle care? Just briefly. Struggle Care is my website that is um, dedicated to all the content that I have made about the intersection of mental health and disability and neurodivergence and care tasks. So like basic self-care, cooking, cleaning, laundry, dishes, all those things that can be really hard when you struggle with those things. I thought this was genius, by the way, because this is something that just has been overlooked. And I've so enjoyed digging into your work, to your, you know, your videos, your website, because I'm not going to lie, it's given me some real ideas about what I'm going to be doing around this house that's going to make my wife a lot happier. So first of all, thank you. Uh, on top of that, you were only relatively recently diagnosed with ADHD, right? So how important and valuable as well has that been for you? Oh my God, it's been really valuable. It's been really helpful in the realm of like being able to be compassionate to myself. Mm. Two years ago, before I was diagnosed, like had I been 30 minutes late to an interview, I would have berated myself. Like I would have been like, oh, Casey, like you're so irresponsible. Like it would have been about a character defect of mine, like mm. something about me that was like me failing. And like fast forward, 
I don't have this shame aspect. It's a huge difference to make a mistake and go, I'm so sorry. How can I make it up? And to know like that is a manifestation of my disability. But two years ago, I would have just hated myself for it. And we're going to come to how you came to your ADHD diagnosis because it's a brilliant story. But let's go back a bit further because you had some addiction issues when you were still a teenager at the age of 16. I believe you spent about 18 months or so in rehab. Did no one think about ADHD then? No. When I sat down with my psychiatrist two years ago and I she asked me a bunch of questions about my childhood and it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like it lined up perfectly. But there were parts of the way that ADHD presented for me that were different than the way it presents for a lot of people. One of the most powerful things I ever heard about ADHD is that ADHD is not a lack of ability to pay attention. It's the lack of the ability to regulate your attention. I can pay attention to something to the exclusion of everything else for hours. But I don't always get to choose what that thing's going to be. It's like what hit, you know, I just ride the dopamine train. And so growing up, I actually really liked learning. And I have an auditory processing disorder that we did know about. And so the accommodation for that is sitting in the front row. So I'm sitting in the front row. There's less distractions for me. And I'm interested in the subject matter. So I'm tuned in. I'm paying attention. I'm listening to the content and then acing all of the tests because I'm I'm like almost hyper fixated on the learning aspect. But what happens is I go home and I don't do any homework. I can't create structure for myself outside of the classroom. But the way that they did grades in my school is that, I mean, you could pretty much get a zero on every homework assignment. And if you were acing the test, you were still going to pass it to class. That continued until high school. And I did well in school until high school. And so nobody, I mean, if you're not failing school, it's really hard to catch an ADHD diagnosis. I wonder if you had been in an addiction center now and whether they would have considered that. But obviously, we'll, we'll never quite know that. I know that that time that you spent in there was valuable, though, to you. You spent a lot of time working on yourself, understanding yourself. It forged your working life in many ways, becoming a counselor, always going really well. But I just want to fast forward in time, if we can to the pandemic, because obviously that threw a lot of our lives upside down, but yours particularly so, because you had this wonderful plan in place, didn't you, for how you Mm -hmm. were going to manage, well, I'll let you tell the story about your your situation in terms of having a baby, et cetera, but you had it all planned and then bang, out it goes. Yeah, I was having my second baby. And so I kind of knew what to expect postpartum. And I had a plan laid out, like, you know, as like a good therapist, you know, okay, well, you know, I had actually started a nonprofit for mothers that was going to do like a meal train and they were going to drop off meals and we were going to have play dates so I could get out of the house. And my, I had family that was going to come consecutively for like, um, you know, six weeks or so. And my, my two-year-old was going to go to daycare during the day. So I had a little time with the baby and I was going to get a cleaning crew and maybe some meal kits. And I mean, the whole thing was all laid out. Um, And my husband had just started a new job that was really, really demanding. And literally three weeks after I gave birth is when my daughter's school shut down, the little daycare shut down. And then like dominoes, everything fell after that. And it was like, oh, no one's coming to drop off food. Nobody is traveling to see me or stay with me. My family all lived out of town. And at that early days of the pandemic, I mean, we weren't even going through drive through places because we didn't know what was going on or how anybody was catching this. And so I couldn't leave the house. And so all of a sudden it was me and my babies, my newborn and my two-year-old 
seven days a week while my husband was working seven days a week, just inside the house 24-7. That sounds tough for anyone, let alone someone who has undiagnosed ADHD. So what was the impact on you, on your well-being? It was almost immediate postpartum depression. And this has only happened to me one other time, and, and I didn't realize the connection, but because of my ADHD, when I get depressed, I don't get sad, I just get numb. When I get chronically understimulated, my brain cannot make happy hormones. And so that was sort of like the internal effect was this postpartum depression and the external effect. I mean, listen, I've always been a messy person. I feel like for a lot of people that comes hand in hand with being ADHD, but it's always been manageable. And all of a sudden, nothing is manageable anymore. The dishes aren't manageable. The laundry isn't manageable. The stuff all over the floor isn't manageable. And I just felt like I was drowning. So what prompted you then to take to social media to share your woes? Because this was a stroke of genius. It, uh, it transpired, <laughs> not necessarily initially. I know you had some rough comments, but wow. Yeah. I mean, it started off with just making a couple of videos that I thought people would relate to, like other mothers might relate to with, you know, oh my gosh, there's too much to do and there's not enough hours in the day and look how messy everything is. And like you said, there were a couple of mean comments, but there were a lot of supportive comments too. And then one day I posted a video, you know, there's like this miracle occurred if both my babies were sleeping at the same time. And I thought, okay, I'm going to clean up real quick. And I developed this way of, of sort of tidying up my space when I was in my early 20s um, to kind of deal with feeling overwhelmed, where I take things in categories. So I'm like, okay, there's only five things in the room and I'm going to throw away all the trash. And then I'm going to put away all the laundry. And then I'm going to put all the dishes in the sink. And then I'm going to put everything that has a place away. And then I'll just have this pile of things that don't have a place and I'll hide it in a box. And um, so I posted it. And, you know, I started it off by saying, listen, if you've got ADHD or mental illness or maybe just children, you know, here, here's a way of cleaning that might help you. And I was a little nervous that I, I would get like really mean feedback about how messy my house was. But I got so many comments of people saying, this is the first like trick that's ever helped me. And so many other people that, that said, I can't believe I'm seeing someone else's house that looks like mine. I, I have so much shame over my house and I've never seen a house that looks like mine. Were you surprised at the extent and the speed at which it blew up? Yes. <laughs> I was very surprised because to me, it was like, doo, 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 this is my like regular day. You know, this is the stuff I think about all the time. And it, it really was, you know, the people that, that started saying, I feel so much shame about this. That's like when the therapist in me kind of kicked in and I really wanted to lean into that idea. And that was the first time I started replying to people and saying, listen, like being messy is morally neutral. I just want to zero in on that comment because I think it's really lovely and important. So you say that care tasks are morally neutral. Can you just expand on that? What does that mean and what are the implications of that? Well, the idea is that like being messy isn't a moral failing. It's quite literally just either a personality trait or a preference or maybe a neurotype or a disability or it's not an indication of irresponsibility or immaturity or failure. It doesn't say anything by itself. You can't look at a mess and know anything about the person that made that mess. And so the term morally neutral means it's not good or bad. It's not right or wrong. It's just functional or it's not functional. Does your space function for you? And if it does, great. Who cares how messy it is? If it doesn't, then you deserve compassionate, non-judgmental tips on how to get it functional. Because even if it's not functional for you, 
that still doesn't mean that you're failing. It, it, who knows what it means? It could mean you're having a hard time. It yeah. could mean that you're not having, it could mean you're having a great time. Maybe it means that you just got a great promotion at work or you just had a baby or some other really wonderful but time-consuming thing is happening in your life. And that's why I think I, I love what you talk about so much. It's about systems because I think for people who have ADHD, having systems like this one that you've created are so helpful, aren't they? And really what this was, was a coping mechanism that you developed to help you with, let's say, your ADHD before you even knew you had ADHD. That's what it is in a nutshell, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And my psychiatrist commented that one of the hardest people to diagnose or to like get caught, you know, by diagnosis are people who from an early age develop these compensatory responses at such a high level that if you're just looking at the result of their work, it doesn't look that different than the result of other people's work. But if you look at the amount of effort that they're having to put in to get that same amount of result, you can see, oh, there's something different happening here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, not everybody has to create these elaborate systems that they have to think about a lot just to keep their house functional. Just quickly recap your five things cleaning system and how you approach the room. The idea is that there are only five things in any room. And those five things are trash, dishes, laundry, things that have a place and things that don't. And instead of just picking up random items, you start at the top and you get a trash bag to carry around and you just pick up all of your trash and that's all you concentrate on. And then you set the bag to the side and then you go and you get all of your laundry and you put it in a basket and you just put the basket to the side and then you pick up all of your dishes and you put it in the sink and you leave them there. And then you go about putting things away that maybe have a place that are easy to put away and making a pile of the things that don't have a place that you pick up and go, I don't know where this goes. And the idea is that that's going to get your space livable very quickly. It's going to help put your brain on autopilot, which is going to circumvent a lot of executive functioning issues that people with ADHD have. And then at the end, you can throw the trash away, put the laundry in the basket, do the dishes, do those things. But even if you kind of burn out or, or lose steam before then, you have a much more livable space than you would have if you had done it in a different order. Simple, but genius. And it obviously keeps overwhelm at bay. But what I found interesting when reading about your story and how everything developed for you was obviously you developed this devoted audience and a lot of them were sort of saying, hey, have you considered that you might have ADHD? There's a few signs, a few signs. You're like, oh, no, not me, blah, blah, blah. And then it all came down to one rogue cup that was <laughs> refusing to budge. I thought this was so funny. Well, in a nice, endearing way. Yeah. So, yeah, can you just share this story as well? Yeah. So, you know, I'm going, I'm, I'm blowing and going. I'm creating all these systems. And then at one point I make this TikTok where I say, you know, there's this cup. It has been sitting on my bedside table for weeks. It's molding. And I see it every day and I walk by it every day and I can't get it picked up. And my my explanation when I kind of looked at like what's going on with me is like, you know, I, I feel like everything I do is in this like energetic river and anything the river flows over, I'm like, I could do it. Like I can be productive. I can get stuff done. I can, I can, you know, whatever. And so like 
the five things tidying method was like a way of doing that or or my you know my dish method or my laundry method was like a way of creating these rituals and rhythms that kind of got me into the groove right that energetic flow and i remarked but the problem is like i had at that time i had no system to address the cup on my bedside table and so it just stayed there and i can't explain why i would see it and couldn't like mobilize my body to pick it up but I said, you know, this is what's the death of me are these like random one off little tasks. And it was that TikTok that made people be like, Casey, you are explaining the ADHD experience. We're at the mercy of whatever's tripping that sort of pleasure center, that attention, that hyper focus. And we it, it feels as though we physically cannot make ourselves pay attention to uh, initiate behavior around or do something that's outside of that sort of little flow. And that is when I finally reached out to my psychiatrist and was like, okay, let's talk. Can you just talk a little bit about the process of starting the conversation and then getting to the diagnosis? Yeah. So she asked me like, well, why do you think you have ADHD? Like, why, why are you bringing it up? And I said, well, and this was one of the things that was like a good thing like side effect of the pandemic was that had we not been in the pandemic, I would have been sitting in this woman's office. But because it was the pandemic, I was on a telehealth call and I just turned the phone and I showed her my kitchen and I said, I do the same five things every night to clean my kitchen and I can't remember them. I have to have them on a list. And I said, I, I can't do anything without a visual list. And I have to reference that list over and over and over and over. In fact, and I showed her my, my fridge was full of paper of lists and systems and instructions. And I said, in fact, I can't really do anything without first constructing this like really detailed system. Like I have to systemize it. And, uh, you know, I can't just be somebody that like picks up as it goes along or decides to clean the kitchen. And, and I, I joke that, you know, I don't know if you've seen that meme where the guy's like standing in front of the billboard of like a conspiracy billboard where there's like the string that's like attaching all of the, you know, connecting all the dots and he looks like kind of crazy. Oh, yeah, yes, uh, so yes. I joke that like that's what I looked like to my psychiatrist where I was like, see, see, to get the trash taken out, we have to first do you know, this list here and then on this list is Tuesdays. And she was like, OK, let's just stop. I will send you the self-assessment, but I think I know what we're dealing with here. And then we continue to talk about what other ways I felt like it showed up. And then the most interesting part, and really the part that convinced me, was she started to ask me questions about my childhood. And they were not questions that I ever had heard before. And they weren't necessarily diagnostic questions, but they were just things that she knew from her experience. So for example, she said, you know, have you ever been diagnosed with a learning disorder? And I was like, in fact, I have. She was like, okay, so like learning, there's a really high correlation between learning disorders and ADHD. She's like, you know, did you ever have any vocal tics? And I was like, in fact, I did. She's like, well, there's a really high correlation between this and that. Did you ever have, I mean, she just like, you know, did you ever have addiction issues? Did you ever have this? Did you ever have that? And I was just like, tick, 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 all the way down. And wow. Okay. When the penny dropped, and you accepted your diagnosis, even though you'd done all this work, you're a, obviously a trained professional counselor, you've done vast amounts of introspection, yet you still had a period of grief, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, because of my experience of going through such intense psychological intervention, 
when I was a teenager and then doing a lot of therapy afterwards. Like I can honestly say that by the time I got my diagnosis, like I wasn't, I didn't have that much. I mean, I didn't really have any self-hatred. Um, and that's exactly what it was, was it was like, oh, my God, I worked so hard to not hate myself. Had I known earlier all those times that I missed a deadline, all those times that I was embarrassed my house was messy, all those times, like, I wouldn't have had to work so hard to get mm. over the shame that I felt. Just to go back to your systems briefly, I had a thought, which is that obviously for people with ADHD, having systems in place that other people, neurotypical people, wouldn't need can be so valuable. I mean, you're absolutely the evidence for that. But what I like so much about yours is that you created yours. And I've heard you talk about everyone's got a Marie Kondo book. And that made me chuckle because my wife and I have got one. And I can honestly say, I don't think I've ever got further than a paragraph or two in. But you created yours. And obviously, even though you have to refer back to it each time. And that's why it works so well for you. I mean, it's simple and other people can adopt it too. But in terms of creating systems that could help people with ADHD, have you any advice on how anyone could go about creating their own system for any anything? Yeah. So I think the first thing is... We, what we, what we want to do is do the smallest change possible. I don't want anyone to run out and say, okay, great. Starting tomorrow, this is how I'm going to do dishes. And this is how I'm going to do laundry. And this is how I'm going to clean. And this is how I'm going to organize. No, that's what we've always done, guys. We've always bought a book and hyper fixated on it and decided that tomorrow is a new day. Tomorrow's our new, the, the first day of the rest of our life. And then we do it for two weeks or two days and then we stop doing it. And then we feel like failures. Um, but it's just because we did too much. We were trying to adopt somebody else's system. And I really, I wrote my book in such a way that it doesn't try to give you a system as much as it tells you about my systems and gives you lots. It's like, I want to, I want to show you all the tools and then I want you to put together the toolkit because I can't just hand you my toolkit. Like it kind of inspires you to create your own systems. And what about for people who are neurotypical? What do you think or what would you say to them about understanding the need that people with ADHD have for putting these systems in place? I think that it's really, really difficult to understand why somebody could struggle with something that seems so simple and natural to you. And the only way I know how to explain it is I think it's like singing. Like I um, grew up singing. I did a lot of musical theater. Like I hear pitch near perfectly and, and have pretty good pitch. And if I look at someone who's not – who can't sing, who's off key or off beat, it's hard for me to understand why they can't just hear it. Even though like the process of me hearing pitch and repeating it is like pretty complex in my brain, but I'm not experiencing it as complex, right? And I don't know how to teach someone to hear it that way. I can point out what's wrong, but I don't know how to teach you rhythm. And I think that it's very similar when someone who's neurotypical who goes, I just don't understand, like just pick up, just pick up after yourself. It's just literally the way someone's brain works. What you just spoke about there reminds me of you talking as well about understanding the limits of your working memory before. I think this is really valuable. Yeah, it's the number one impact on like a daily basis, I think, that my ADHD has on me. So 
everyone knows what long-term memory is. You know, I can remember my birthday party when I was 11 and short-term memory, which is like, I can remember, I don't know, I can remember what I ate last Monday for dinner or whatever. Um, or, you know, I'm studying for a test and I can remember that stuff in order to take the test and then I'll forget it. But there's actually like this third bucket of memory called working memory, which is the holding tank that you put new information in before your brain knows, do we need this? Right? Um, because think about how many things you see in a day. So if you think like, where is that charging cord? And your brain goes, oh yeah, it's on the sofa. Well, that's literally, you know that because your brain visually saw it on the sofa, but your brain was able to almost like tag that piece of visual information as important and file it and not forget it. But think about the amount of things you see in a day. It's millions of things you see in a day. And your brain is having to decide which of those visual snapshots have relevant information that we need to hold on to because we might need to reference it. And and which of it really, there's nothing there. Like to my left, you know, there's my phone and a Dr. Pepper can and and some soundproofing. Like, is there anything in that picture that needs to be recorded? Like, yeah, my phone's there. So hold on to that. But how many times do we look over, glance at something and our brain goes, there's nothing there. We need to remember, get rid of it. Um, so your working memory is like where you're holding all those snapshots in the meantime, the pieces of information, something somebody said, something you wanted to do. Um, and for someone who's neurotypical, they can have almost like several tabs open in their working memory tank. Um, and for me, I can have one, right? So like I can look over, know my phone is there. Um, but if I walk out of here and I think to myself, oh yeah, I need to X, Y, Z, like I won't remember where my phone is. That's why I lose things all the time. Mm. Um, and so that is one of the reasons why I'm also so messy because I literally, like I said with the milk, like once I turn or turn my back to it, it's gone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just chuckling. I resonate with this a lot. You know, it's like, yeah, you put a towel down, it's yeah. the towel no longer exists, right? It you know? doesn't <laughs> exist to me anymore until I see it. But the thing is, is that when I see the thing again, I'm typically on my way to do something else. And if I stop to do the thing I just saw, I will forget what I was on the way to do. And if I keep going on the way to do something and go, oh, there's that towel, I should come back to it. I won't. I'll forget it as soon as I walk out to do the thing that I was already doing. And again, this comes back to to systems and, and things like this in place to, so you're not having to rely on your working memory. And I exactly. think the fact that you have this brilliant way of looking at a cluttered room, breaking it down into five parts, but you still have to refer to your list about those five elements speaks absolute volumes. Now, Casey, if, if you had to pick one of the ADHD core traits, which one do you resonate most with? I think it'd probably be the inattention but not, but the way that I experience inattention is not the same way that other people I like describe it. Like inattention is always described as daydreaming. Like, oh, someone's talking and I can't make myself listen. Um, sometimes it's that. Like, for example, like I really love, there's a couple of podcasts that I love. I cannot sit down and listen to a podcast. My brain can't pay attention. Like, have you ever had that experience where you're reading a book? And all of a sudden you realize, okay, I just read a paragraph and I don't, I didn't digest, I, I didn't actually read it. You got to go back. That's how it is with listening. All of a sudden I'll be like, I'm not listening or I'll get bored or I get whatever. But then I found out if I am cleaning my kitchen while I listen to a podcast, I can pay attention. Totally. 
right? Because there's this understimulation when I'm only doing the audio, but if I'm doing the audio and something, I can do that. So that's an inattention issue. Okay, just finally and just briefly, if you had to describe ADHD as a strength, a weakness, a trait, a disorder, or none of those things, what would it be? I would say it's a neurotype. And I would say that in that, it is absolutely a disability. But also, it's not a disease. Like, it's not something that I, you know, who would I be without AD? It doesn't work that way. Like, I can know who would I be without asthma. I would be exactly myself. I'd just be able to breathe better. I can't do the who would I be without ADHD because it is so a part and parcel of my personality and my experience of the world and the way my brain works. And there are some things about the way my brain works that I love. And so I would say it's a neurotype. And I would say that that, that neurotype is sometimes disabling. That's really well put. And like you say, it shapes your view of the world, the way you are in the world, and it's enabled you to produce some wonderful work. So why don't you tell us a bit about all of your stuff? Sure. So my website is strugglecare.com. You can get to everything I do from there. Um, You can go figure out where to buy my book, which is How to Keep House While Drowning. You can, um, it links to my TikTok account, which is Domestic Blisters, my Instagram and Facebook, which is Struggle Care. Um, I have some courses. I have some online downloads. Um, I have a podcast called Struggle Care. And you can pretty much get to all that from the website. All brilliant stuff. And listen, Casey, I just want to say thank you so much. Like I said, I've really enjoyed talking to you. I'm very as well grateful for for all the stuff you put out there. I know it's going to benefit me. I hope it will benefit lots of the listeners too. So thank you for being you and thank you for the chat too. It's been lovely. Thank you. Dr. Shayette, Sarah, thank you for joining me. So you listened to the conversation I had with Casey Davis and I want to start by asking about her experiences as a teenager with addiction and how common addiction issues can be in the ADHD community? You know, that's a great question, Simon. Um, And I would love to give you an absolutely well-researched answer, but this isn't very well-researched. I will say that ADHD has a lot of overlap with anxiety and depression. Some of the symptoms are very common to both. For example, restlessness is common to anxiety and ADHD. And people with ADHD have a lot more anxiety and depression. And they will self-medicate sometimes to kind of wipe out the feelings that they're different, to wipe out the feelings that they should be doing better, and some of the shame that Casey had talked about. When Casey was in the rehabilitation center. They didn't explore ADHD as a possibility. Do you think that would be much less likely to, or would it be more likely rather to go down that avenue these days, do you think? I think these days people are more likely to recognize ADHD as uh, being a cause of some anxiety and depression. You know, it's easier to notice the anxiety and depression, and society is more used to diagnosing anxiety and depression in adults. It's only recently that it was thought that adults have ADHD, that it is 
acceptable to have that as a diagnosis. So many people have gone for many years, even decades, and seen many doctors trying to get their anxiety and depression fixed. And it turns out the ADHD was underlying that. You know, it's always best to fix the right problem. What I found really interesting listening to Casey speak was the systems she's put in place and how effective they've been and how much they've resonated with other people as well. But it got me thinking, but there's a couple of aspects about this. First of all, actually, how difficult it can be, though, to put systems in place in the first place. Oh, my goodness. That is a big problem because when you have somebody who has challenges in their attention, it's hard to maintain the attention for the task of putting in the systems. People often try to get a too complicated a system and they fail. A lot of people with ADHD would benefit highly from a coach or a therapist, somebody outside themselves who can help them place a system that will work for them and also help them stick to it once they have inevitable goof-ups, which we all have goof-ups. But if you have a bunch of people with ADHD who are you know, kind of used to having failures, they they start believing that about themselves. And I heard that too with Casey's interview. She believed she couldn't do things. And that affects your attention for doing them in the, you know, in the future. That is interesting what you said there about Casey perhaps believing that she couldn't do things. And something that resonates with me is, you know, once you've got, let's say, the diagnosis, then you can keep an eye out for perhaps some of the red flags in those areas that perhaps you may be a bit more prone to slipping up than neurotypical people, let's say. But also that diagnosis, it seems to me, can reduce some of the shame you might feel when you do make mistakes. And we all do make mistakes, don't we? But in those areas where perhaps it's more typical for the ADHD community. And I think that's valuable. Absolutely. And that gets into the heart of what it really means to have ADHD A lot of people in the ADHD community or the neurodiverse community or whatever you want to call it, they know that their brains have some differences, but really their brains are more alike to people than than they may feel. We all have a switch in our brain and that switch has a fancy name, um, default mode network, but let's call it DMN or let's just call it the switch. The switch... And it's in all of us. We all have a switch in our brain that goes from not focused sometimes to focused sometimes. I don't know anybody who's not focused all the time, although I think I've met people who are close. But, you know, everyone can focus at times. Everyone is not focused at times. And the thing about ADHD is that that switch is in the not focused state too much of the time. That's the tendency. And so knowing... You know, the purpose of having a diagnosis is understanding how you think and knowing that your switch tends to be in the not focused state too much of the time, hopefully will help you understand that you can get it to focus, but you have to work harder or do that differently from some other people. And there's nothing wrong with you. It's just very helpful to understand how your brain works. Dr. Shaya, thank you very much for discussing that conversation. Fascinating listening to you. Oh, thank you.
for listening to this episode of the Rethinking ADHD podcast. If you have any questions, please do get in touch. I'm at Simon Mundy on social media or head to the QB Tech website. Links are in the show notes.